Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Heyho Mooncat and Co. is Europalocho. Hello. And also joining us, all the way over there in the wide, wide world of sport, at the other end of the universe in New Zealand, is Birdie. Kiora! Pardon? Kiora. Kiora. It's too orangey for crows. Kiora. <laughs> Anyway, so yes, and here we are. Now, the last time... I'll be your dog. <laughs> that came out more like Husky from Space Patrol, but you get the idea. I never liked that one where they mucked about at the end and said, no available in low sugar or whatever the hell it was. I was like, no, don't do that. No, no, no. Anyway, last time you joined us, Brody, we were talking about class. And we are once again talking about class today. However, we've moved on from the middle classes... Are we going up or down the social ladder? Well, let's not be judgmental. Let's just say we're going across. Oh, we're going down. (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) Okay, so we are talking today about representations of the working class in sitcom. We've chosen four different shows, one episode of each, for our analysis. So, first of all, we had, in sort of linear order, we had... A classic episode of On the Buzzies. Then we fast forward about 20 odd years or so. And we have from 1998. Well, pick and choose because they both went out in pretty much the same month. You've got on one hand Victoria Wood and Dinner Ladies. And over on BBC Two, you've got The Royal Family debuting. And then a few years later, from one of the creators of The Royal Family, you have the finest sitcom. As far as I'm concerned, made in the last ten years or so, and I'll be astonished if anybody disagrees with me yeah, on I mean, this. With faint praise, there. <laughs> a lovely little series. Legitimately, I'm not taking the piss. A lovely little series called <laughs> Early Doors, which is absolutely bloody brilliant, and I won't hear a word against it. Although I think I may do in the course of the next hour or so. Anyway, right. So Ocho. we're not making value judgments about the shows. I thought we were supposed to really look about what these shows tell us about the peasantry. <laughs> Got my monocle, <laughs> you insignificant little tick. Do you have a class structure in New Zealand? Or is it just New Zealanders and hobbits? <laughs> well, I said before we don't have a class system and I got bullied. I got bullied on the forum. Oh, yes. Because, well, I don't know. It's because I'm probably so middle class, I don't see the other class. But there's poverty and there's uh, wealthy people. I don't think there's the snobbery and so forth. I think there's a bit more social mobility, maybe. But I may be wrong. The important bit is, what's the telly like? The telly? Well, that's a very interesting question because it's changed a lot since I first came here because we now have Sky and many, many people have Sky because that's where the major sporting events are now. So your TV is, we've got, I don't know how many channels we've got now. I think State Broadcaster must have three, I think, three or four. But yes, yeah, Sky's got lots of stuff on there. There's also something called Freeview. You've got a lot of channels on that. One of the telephone companies have started a online sort of service. And there's on-demand stuff as well. But a lot of the television's American that we, that we see. That sounds remarkably like the UK. In fact, it sounds exactly like the UK. So first up, pulled out an episode of On the Buses. These are all specially selected episodes. And this particular episode, for once, did not involve Stan trying to get his end away. It involved the cistern, the toilet. Now, I chose this one because there was a lot of the trials of sharing a house 
the whole business about the toilet is going in the middle of the night and there is Stan and his sister and his mother and his brother-in-law. Stan doesn't actually leave home, despite the fact that he's, I mean, what is he, like 75 by this point? He doesn't actually <laughs> leave home until the middle of the final series of On the Buses. Although we're supposed to assume that he's like in his late 20s or whatever. But Well, we we did assume that, didn't we? And then we found in a book by Kaleidoscope, the fantastic archive television organisation, I don't know if it's still there, but they did give away a free PDF for Christmas. And there was information in that. It turned out that the creators of On the Buses, Chesney and Wolf, had Reg Varney as their first choice. Also on the list was Ronnie Barker. So we'd been talking when we were doing our recasting game about how, yeah, well, obviously he should be played by a much younger actor, but I guess that wasn't in their mind. So maybe it was a wish fulfillment of a 55-year-old man groping 20-something clippers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like I said, this particular episode doesn't really focus on all that nastiness. Okay, the first aspect we can talk about then is this idea of the crowded household. So it's one that you do get a lot in sitcoms which concentrate on a working class family unit. You may also have extended members of the family in there and you've got just something as basic as everyone queuing up to use the bathroom. Well, Downton Abbey's pretty crowded, isn't it? Well, yeah, but they've got lots of rooms. Um, actually, that thing about, you know, saying, uh, you know, was there a class system? I said, I, I didn't know in New Zealand. And I, I, it's not a class thing, but certainly um, families, more Pacific Islanders, that's very much having uh, lots of people in the house. It's not just to do with um, lower incomes, but also there is this idea of that you look after your family. And my husband works for um, a company that does rest homes, retirement villages. It's very white bread. There's not a lot of uh, cultural diversity there. It's possibly because that people do look after their families in their homes. So overcrowding as such over here, it could be a class thing, could be a poverty thing, but it can be a cultural thing as well. But of course, in the UK, the idea is to get out and get your own place, isn't it? Well, yes, but of course, well, that's, now becoming, it is. that's becoming more and more difficult. Yeah. And we're seeing the rise of the 30-somethings who are still at home because they just can't afford to get their first foot on the property ladder. It's a big problem, especially for people obviously in the, the capital and what have you. Ocho, this aspect of the episode, this is something which you do find in on the buses. It's something which comes back again and again. For example, one repeated plot device is the lodger coming in and again that leads to more overcrowding and so on. I agree. <laughs> I just realised there was no question at the end of that statement. So, Another aspect that you get quite frequently in the series is discussion about the higher purchase repayments and how Stan's always having to work overtime and there's constant dialogue about how much money everybody's chipping in to the pot for housekeeping each week. But there is a thing. They've been through the post-war consensus and this is... Harold Wilson's Britain question mark? No, we're on to Heath now. Okay. But their experience is going to be it's it's strange. In some ways it seems to be a throwback. A bit like we we're saying about nearest and dearest that there were Victorians in the audience. In a way, this is working class life being portrayed not necessarily as it really was in the seventies, but as it was in the thirties and forties for an audience who'd grown up with that. But they seemed relatively comfortable. There didn't seem to be any 
I know it sounds silly. There didn't seem to be any political aspect. Well, of course not. It's on the buses. But there didn't seem to be any unintentional political aspect. Well, they were all working as well. The, the men in the household, they've all got jobs, haven't they? When you go through the other programs you watched, it became much more clear you've got quite a few people that aren't actually working. The interesting thing is we missed out the 80s completely in what we were looking at. Was that deliberate? I think you had more to do with the selection process this time, Mooncat. No, it wasn't me. Because obviously I wear a monocle all the time and I went to a minor public school. No, I didn't. I grew up in a terraced house in Bradford. And I... We did consider... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Born in a box. Well, yes, okay. My school had a school song that had been specially written for it, but it was still... <laughs> I still didn't pay for my education. For somebody who went to school in Glasgow, you might as well just said you went to Eton in that case. <laughs> Back to um, on the buses. I thought their house was quite large. Sitcom size, isn't it? Everybody has to have a house at least big enough to fit three cameras. Well, you know, you say that, but a little while ago I was with a friend and we had a coronation ship was on the background and it was in Deirdre and Ken's lounge and it was tiny. Our cameras are smaller now. Oh, okay. No, I just thought they had a pitch of three double bedrooms. That was all, which is that's quite a big for a terrace house, isn't it? I'm just thinking Steptoe and Son. Their living room is actually massive. It's just very, very dark. That makes it more claustrophobic. I was going to say, in, I remember one of the film versions, uh, they had the washing drying in there, you know, on the inside. And that's just horrible. <laughs> it was horrible in working class, having washing, hanging, drying indoors. Oh, well, that, that's quite a normal thing, isn't it? Because you've got, you usually got the, the pulley where you've got like the, the rack and then you can hang all the clothes and then you hoist it up and it just hangs, in, usually in the kitchenette. We didn't even have one of those. We had to have a clothes horse. Well, normally the Not kitchen. Now, well, the kitchenette would be usually like one of the warmer rooms in the, in the oh. house. If you've got like the, the oven and what have you going, so yeah, it's a good place to have your washing hanging. And of course, because you pull up up to the, the ceiling, then it's out of the way. So have a luxury. <laughs> <laughs> but I okay. mentioned that on my street, while everybody had indoor plumbing, some of the houses still had the old middens in the back garden. We got rid of our mid-in, apparently, before. Well, probably before my parents had even moved in there, so... Yeah, at least they had an inside toilet, didn't they, on the buses? Our toilet was really cramped, because it obviously been made out of one-third of one of the bedrooms, because the house had been built about 1875, which Americans think is ridiculous. <laughs> it's just normal, isn't it? Yeah. I'll tell you one thing I think... I, okay, I don't know if this is atypical, but amongst the families that I knew growing up, I think that this would have been unusual. And on the buses, they use their front room. We don't see it each and every week. More often than not, they're in the kitchen, but there is a front room that gets referred yep. to. And they use it, apparently. Whereas all the people that I knew who had front rooms the best. didn't the use best. a front room. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it was, it was kept yeah. spotless and it was kept for when the, the vicar Same comes around. Same with us. We didn't use our front room. We used our back room near the kitchen. There you go. Did we laugh on the buses? I enjoy. I, I, I am. Of course, you laughed at it. It's your show, isn't it? I am a big fan <laughs> of on the buses. I like on the buses. It, on the buses is nice and harmless, and it's just there. It's something that I can put on ITV free. Bingo on the buses. There we go. And you know it's going to be. I have seen okay. something far funnier involving Blakey in a toilet. Yeah. What adventures of plumbers, <laughs> mate? No, uh, Alexis sells stuff. Oh, of course, yes, yes. Did you see that message I sent you about what happened to Jack? 
you know that this his sad life. Did you? Well, yeah, no, you know I, yeah, I, 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 yeah. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't reply to that. Yeah, Bob Grant had a yeah, he had quite terrible a, life, didn't he? Yeah. The funny thing is, I actually um, I heard him once in a BBC radio production of Don Quixote, where he's playing alongside Bob Hoskins, and you would never, never have known it was Bob Grant. I mean, it's just his accent totally, totally different. He sounded like he should have been in Downton Abbey. I'm not downstairs. Yeah, no, you wouldn't. We wouldn't have guessed it was Jack, but. Can I just point out, as far as Blakey is concerned, he did appear in Adventures of a Plumber's Mate as Crapper. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I'm sure that we can all sympathise with the situation of queuing outside the smallest room in the house, unless, of course, you had, like, two toilets. But who the hell had two toilets? I mean, for goodness sake, this isn't... We did. This isn't Dallas. We had two toilets. Two, two, two. What? We had two. Yeah. Two, two. We had one at. Well, we had one outside with the chain, and then uh, in the seventies, the council had this scheme for putting bathrooms inside the house. I think Roy Kinnear fronted the uh, TV yes. campaign for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Someone and on we YouTube. had one installed yeah. inside. Yeah, we had one but installed inside. Did you have any concerns? I mean, I mean, legitimately, I've heard tales of people actually having concerns about the toilets being put inside as if it was in some way unhygienic. No, the fact that before that was uh, put in, that we used to have a bucket in the bathroom instead. I, I think uh, we were we were much happier with the toilet. You know where you are with a bucket, don't you? <laughs> yeah, you do know where you are with a bucket. No, we, we were quite comfortable with the uh, toilet inside. At least I was. Funnily uh, enough, when Tony Blair... About six months or so before he became Prime Minister, he appeared on Frank Skinner's chat show. And Frank Skinner asked him about his upbringing. And he said, as part of the interview, as far as I'm concerned, the acid test as to whether you were working class or not was, did you grow up with a bucket in your bedroom? And Tony Blair didn't understand what that meant. He was thrown by it. (laughs) And apparently Alistair Campbell had asked for that to be cut out. But they left it in. They left it in in the broadcast version. But I would have thought that everybody, even if you didn't have a bucket in your bedroom, then I would have thought everybody would at least have understood what that meant, unless you think, what was the roof leaking or something? I mean, if the roof was leaking, it could double up and it could have a dual purpose. I'm just thinking that Frank's going to talk a lot about the bucket in the bedroom. We didn't have it in our bedroom. We had it in the bathroom. We just didn't keep it in the in the bedroom. That's just that's gross. Well, no. The thing is that if you've got maybe lino, or even if you've just got like a wooden floor on the the hallway, then you don't want to be walking out of that on the cold, like in January, in the middle of the night. Have it in the bedroom and just have like a a discreet paper towel you can put over the top of it, and, and there you are, and you get used to the smell. So. Were there more realistic portrayals of working class life in the 70s? The thing is, is we were talking about how sitcom is such a middle class form last time. Or that's the general association in people's minds. Is on the buses middle class people making what they think working class people would like to watch? Because it's London Weekend Television, which started out with such lofty ideals. And then suddenly remembered I had to pay the bills. Yeah. It's hard, isn't it, to know what it was really like? I don't know. I felt that when I was watching The Royal Family later on, whether that was, I wasn't sure whether I was laughing at them or with them. I want to put an idea. As soon as you get a job in the entertainment industry, you become middle class. And eventually you will forget what being anything other than middle class was like. That sounds fair. Oh, okay. 
Mooncare, do you want to give me an argument on that? I don't think... Yeah, I see what you mean, but I think that... Because I wasn't stating that as an absolute truth. I was I was hoping you might chip away at it. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, there's a difference when it comes to script writers, so... I mean, I can understand when you get, like, especially today, the levels of bureaucracy that you go through to get, like, a show commissioned and made by BBC. Yeah, the number of different pairs of hands that that would go through and the number of amendments that could be made to that, then your gritty portrayal of working class life could very well come out as something unrecognisable. Well, TV's more middle class now, though. Well, the classes have kind of moved together a bit. Middle class people, I think, are less likely to try and demonstrate esoteric knowledge. It's really just which accent you use to state your banalities. So I'm just in a really misanthropic mood today. I'm I'm just (laughs) in the mood to wipe out the entire human race and leave the planet to the animals. Okay, so if you think that the human race should be wiped out, then retweet this. And if you think it shouldn't, then favorite it. And we'll tally up the results at the end of the podcast. Now... One last thing about on the bus before we jump forward 20 years. The situation that they find themselves in, having got all the bits and pieces, the new toilet, new basin, and oh, so on and so God, on, yeah. they've got to get it back home. And that, that's, that's, a, that's a crucial bit. That's a crucial bit as far as working class situations is concerned. The idea that you can suddenly just stick your hand out and get a taxi, not going to happen. That's, I mean, how many bus fares would that amount to so they've got the business of how they actually get the the bits and pieces home and eventually they have to borrow a stranger's pram in order to do it i mean for a lot of people that just wouldn't be an issue because they'd have a car but again that's going to cost money that's going to cost money to to buy it and then to run it and put fuel on it and so on and so on i mean as the name suggests they're all reliant in some way on public transport and that brings with it its own problems. Yes. <laughs> and again, I haven't asked the question. Now, I'm going to make an outrageous confession at this point. Wait, wait, wait. Cars, hold on. Uh, my parents didn't drive, and they never learned to drive until a very late in life. But I think it was not so much a class thing. It's just you didn't need to drive because there were buses. There was great public transport. Why did you need to drive? And you never went anywhere, you know, out of your only your own sort of uh, – Locale, so maybe that's why you know they just—it's paucity of their vision rather than uh, than anything else. I reckon they just—they uh, live where they live, and they don't need to go anywhere else, do they? Well, it's interesting you say that actually, because if we jump forward twenty odd years, let's start with the royal family. I'll move on to dinner ladies afterwards. But there is not in the particular episode that we watched, but there is a line in an episode of the royal family where Anthony suddenly announces that next week he's going to visit London. And he may as well have said that he was going to go on a year's safari to a previously uninhabited area of the globe because it's just the reaction that he gets like London. Seriously. It's like, what, what you mean? Like, as in, listen, like Big Ben and Parliament and all that. And yeah, th- this idea that you sort of, you were brought up and you lived in one area and that was the area in which you worked and so on. You sometimes see that also in older sitcoms where the family doctor, for example, will have known the family basically all of his working life and he might be treating somebody as an adult who previously he had helped deliver, for example, because you know, people work in the same little communities. And there's something quite sort of charming about that. And 
I guess, in another way, it's also quite nice these days that you can just hop on a plane and find yourself in all manner of far-flung places. Well, Anthony's the one that gets away, isn't he? His horizons are a bit broader, aren't they, than the rest of the family? And he does actually get away, I think, somewhere else in the episode. He actually moves away and becomes successful and stuff. He actually gets away. Whereas, you know, the rest of them, they're just going to just, their lives are just, oh, they're grim. Well, no, they're not grim. No, they're small. They're very small lives. They're happy, but it's very small. Well, I think that's absolutely crucial part of it, isn't it? Is that they are happy. And then, strangely enough, the person who is probably the least happy in that room is Anthony. I mean, partly because he's always getting picked on, he's always got to go and answer the door or make a brew or whatever it is. And he's the one person out of that group who, in years later, suddenly finds himself working in Congleton, where they keep the computers. (laughs) He has a computer in a bag. Can I not talk about sitcoms again? Yes. I remember seeing the other day somebody making the argument about why Doctor Who was just fundamentally more valuable as a piece of television than Coronation Street. Oh, Jesus. I thought, well, I won't, I won't get involved in a slanging match, but what ran through my brain was that, not that one is better than the other, but that Coronation Street has amazing value because in real time, it is the 54-year story of a man who never left the street he was born on and was obviously supposed to. Yep, he, he was. He was the educated one, isn't he? He was the one that should have got away. Yeah. He's supposed to be gone by 1962. Um, You know what? The character was supposed to be written out. I think he was supposed to go to Australia, and I'm not sure why. Well, you know, I mean, tell you what, when we do our new idea for a podcast next year, we'll really go in depth on Coronation Street, really painfully in depth, really annoyingly in depth. Both yourselves, Ocho and Buddy, unlike myself, who's been up and down the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, both yourselves have made the leap beyond these shores. Did either of you think, when you were growing up in your respective areas, did you think about wanting to leave the UK at some point? Or was it just something that happened sort of naturally? Because I don't think that it was something that ever occurred to myself when I was growing up that I would necessarily find myself like 400 miles away at some point in the future. And, that you know, in the far-flung you know depths of the uh, the TVS region. And that, to me, was a long john. I wasn't quite Autumn Almanac, but no, I don't think I did see myself being too far away from Bradford. I studied up in Newcastle, so it was quite a long way from home. But I think it never occurred to me. I think I, I don't think I would have. I don't know. I, I don't never. I never particularly wanted to travel. Although I did. I don't know what I thought I was going to do. Probably stay in Portsmouth. Um, it's only through education by getting a scholarship to the other side of the world. That's how I ended up here. So for us, I mean, all my my brothers have all they've all moved away, but my mother's generation, most of her family was still in the same city. So I think it's education that's the driver for getting away. Well, it opens up. It always new, has been. Yeah, it opens doors, doesn't it? But I think that there is perhaps there's a subtle difference in not necessarily thinking that you're going to find yourself somewhere else and. Perhaps a few generations previously, it would have just been absolutely unthinkable. The very idea that you would find yourself on another continent would just be absurd. I mean, that's just somewhere that you see on a globe. Different people live there, and you might occasionally see them at the local cinema, you know, before the main feature or whatever it may be. But the idea that you suddenly find yourself there is just unbelievable. But then again, that's a lot of that's to do with just evolution of transportation as well, as well as social mobility. And communication as well. Yes. 
Yeah, and in the, the old days, going overseas and so forth, that was much more of an adventure, I guess. Oh, it's a heap of things. It's like, I remember some time ago watching one of those Who Do You Think You Are programs, which is Robert Lindsay, and um, he went, no, hey, he's all right, leave him alone. <laughs> I was not saying anything against Robert Lindsay. I was um, just wondering why you were watching that. No, he was a very handsome man. Do you have something to catch the drool? <laughs> <laughs> But he went into the factory where he was going to always, um, you know, his father worked or whatever. He went there once and that was it. He never he never actually worked in there. They knew that that wasn't for him. And, you know, he went off to become an actor and so forth. But I think it's that kind of kind of generational thing is, you know, going into the, whether it's the pits or the factory or so forth, that's gone now. So maybe that's part of it as well. It's easier for people to get away. There's- but then the job for life thing going away has had its own. I don't know. Do, do you think television now is more middle class than, say, the 70s? Yeah, I think so. You hear that a lot these days. I mean, I, I think it might have been Julie Walters just said the other day about how the acting profession these days was only for rich kids because most people couldn't afford it now in, in terms of going through the process of, of being trained and so on. Of course, there's so many internships these days in business where people are expected to work for nothing and live in London. And so that's only really going to be available and accessible to a very, very small part of the population. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think that there is a widening gulf. That's the point, I think. It's that gulf, isn't it? There's always going to be representations of the working class, but are we really definitely going to be in a situation where they're middle-class people's ideas of what working-class people are like, or they're written by a pet working-class person who has been allowed into the hallowed halls of the self-selecting elite. And if it goes through the hands of a middle-class script editor, for example, and then perhaps according to focus groups it's then tweaked and so on, and also we've perhaps got one hey, eye... can I bring up my magpie thing? You know how people children say, watch Blue Peter. Yeah, and working-class children watch magpie... I say thee nay, right? Blue Peter, all very nice and comfortable. And yes, we're definitely middle class, aren't we? We're so middle class. It's wonderful. Lower middle class. Because, hey, I'm middle class. Look at me, everybody. I actually made it to the middle classes. Whereas Magpie, yeah, hey, kids. We're not like the boring straights, man. We're not like the, we're not the man upper middle class. Well, you could be right. Buddy. The crucial point about the royal family is this. Did you ever have pomine? Well, it's funny while you were watching that, because back in the day, when we used to have fairs and stuff, like at the local community centre, my dad used to do this thing. He built this kind of uh, wheel. Uh, you know, you spun it around and it hit a number. So you bought a number, you got a prize, you know, if it hit your number. And the prize was always a bottle of pomine, and he called himself Pomaine Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very familiar with pomaine. Mmm, delicious. <laughs> well, I did actually research it earlier on today because I've been meaning to look it up for ages. And I was very disappointed, first of all, to find out that it's no longer produced. And I did see people on Twitter tweeting at Bulmers, because that's what it was, Bulmers Cider, tweeting at them saying, could you not bring it back as a limited edition? And <laughs> I do. I hope one day it will come back because I'd like to try it. And Mooncat. Yes. What is pomaine? Okay, so for those who are unfamiliar, pomaine was basically a fancy Bulmer's cider. Am I right in saying, buddy, this is a fizzy Bulmer's yeah, cider? I, it reminded me more of Baby Sham, I think. Well, it's Baby Sham with apples instead of pears, then. 
Oh, yeah, 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 I suppose so, yeah. Apparently, they actually used the word champagne initially in their advertising until they were leaned on by the producers of champagne. Until... Well, Baby Sham did that for a while. It's, it's, I've seen adverts where they describe it as a champagne perry. According to the Wikipedia entry, the processing initially was that it was the first pressing of the fruit, but later on it changed to being simply produced in a vat as most mass-produced drinks would be. But the crucial part is that in a different episode of The Royal Family, I think it's when Dave and Denise announce that they're expecting. And Barbara says, come on, we should be celebrating. Let's get some pomade. And Jim says, oh, no, 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 nothing but the best for this kid. Forget the pomade, let's have champagne. And he says to Anthony, how much is that going to send me back? And Anthony says, about 25 quid. And Jim says, yeah, just, he pulls out a fiver and says, yeah, just, just get the pomade. Well, it's, not tw- <laughs> it's not twins, is it? So, yeah, so I that, the that... punchline was going to be, Hesti Spumenti. Yum. None of them hold a candle to Pepsi Max. Anyway, moving on to Dinner Ladies. We watched episode one of series one. There's a nice wee contrast in that first episode between the core group, the Dinner Ladies themselves, and the character of Philippa in Human Resources. And there's a little bit of a class difference there. So not only is Philippa sort of our pair of eyes into the canteen and she introduces herself and therefore everybody introduces themselves to herself but also there's a bit of a class difference and also a bit of a culture difference because she's come up to the north for this role. Now the thing I remember hearing about Dinner Ladies is that Victoria Wood did not want it to be produced the way it was. She'd wanted no audience and single camera. I don't have any source or citation for that. So if you know similar, yeah, the, essentially it would look like Early Doors or the Royal Family. That's my understanding. And if anybody has any evidence either way, I'd like to know of it. I've not actually heard that before, but I have definitely heard Victoria would say that the Royal Family spoiled Dinner Ladies in a way because it made Dinner Ladies look old-fashioned. When the Royal Family took off and became hugely popular, suddenly every sitcom wanted to look like the Royal Family. And for about a 10-year period afterwards, all you got was single camera, no audience. And Dinner Ladies, by comparison, looked dated. And it's only now with things like Miranda and Mrs. Bounds Boys and so on that we've got back to free walls and audience. But I don't know that's necessarily true, but I think that Dinner Ladies, I don't think that Dinner Ladies looks particularly dated. I don't think so. It works fine, but television got so achingly self-conscious that people started to get worried about this. I mean, it's not like everything before then was all three walls, an audience. Take something like Minder. Comedy drama, but doesn't look like The Good Life. It wasn't done in the same way. There are film shows and there are theatrical shows and they should be able to coexist. But no, because of the expansion of just commentary and hype about media, I can't go on or I'll start getting violent. <laughs> well, Birdie, this is your favourite show out of the ones we watched, isn't it? Oh, it was the funniest. I suppose the, the other, let's put um, on the buses to one side, but um, Royal Family and Early Doors, there's obviously meant to be a bit of realism to what's going on. But 
with dinner ladies, you still got, it's quite surreal. A lot of the dialogue and so forth. It's very funny, but it's clearly not really grounded that much in reality, really. I mean, the character of, no, I can't remember that, Stan, you know, things like that. They're not real. They're, they're just characters, but it was. Well, to me, it's not so much that they're unrealistic, but they're cherry picked. Yeah, yeah. But These people are... don't speak like they're real life. Well, they do say all these things, but they might say them over a 20-year period. There are strange little things that do seem, you said, quite surreal. Some of the non-sequiturs seem fairly realistic. I can't remember what the line is, and it wasn't in the show we watched. But there was something about, she says something wrong, and she says, why did I say that? Oh, yeah, I know. Carrie on Cabby was on TV the other night. I fudged it there. But her explanation for why she did something does not actually connect. But it makes sense in her own mind. So some of the cross purpose talking is realistic but it's all been yeah it's all been lifted it's very much um a lot of the humor i think is very much will appeal more to females than the, the men i mean it's, it's just the way victoria wood writes but um even though it's very funny which is probably good for a sitcom as you go through the series there's a lot of sweetness in there and there's you do care about the characters and it's nice that it has a happy ending yeah i think it was definitely trying to be different from the things that had gone before with the casual references to pornography and chemotherapy. Yeah, and there's a abandoned baby and all sorts of things. I mean, it's. I think the main thing about a comedy is that it should be funny. And, um, yeah, it was funny. Early Doors wasn't funny. <coughs> no, well, no, no, I, I will defend <laughs> Early Doors in a moment. I will, we'll come on to that. Victoria Wood, she's a national treasure. So there you go. Well, I was just seeing a discussion. Yes, she is. Okay, but I was just seeing a discussion earlier today with some people who were putting forward the idea that she'd lost it somewhere along the line. It was, it was two different Christmas specials, I think. All Day Breakfast was 92. That was a good All one. All Day Breakfast and... is astonishing and contains one of the greatest moments of television, which is Celia Imry dying of exercise on flickering nitrate. And the Mal is funnier than Acorn Antiques. There, I said it. Isn't she doing some kind of Christmassy uh, thing, musical thing with Michael Ball this year? This is where things turned against her. I can't remember which one. I think it was... It was a midlife crisis. No, Victoria Wood with all the trimmings was the one. I liked that one. I liked all the trimmings. That was the one where I sense people had turned against her because part of it seemed to be, have you ever noticed how difficult it is to get something commissioned by the BBC? <laughs> but I think that rubbed some people up the wrong way. And then Midlife Christmas seemed to be the one that was a bit of a critical bomb. And I don't even think she herself was particularly happy with that because I think there were some personnel changes in the crew that were not her decision. It's got a funny old feel to it, that show, it doesn't. I'm not sure television's really friendly to her style anymore. Well, we'll see this Christmas. Okay, to concentrate on class in Dinner Ladies, I like the fact that there isn't really anything in here which I think gets into maudlin or anything that you really think is particularly patronising. I think that's an area where it's really, really easy for somebody to get into. If the person who's writing this, because everybody knows that it's Victoria Wood who's writing it, the person who's writing it, how can I put this? Okay, if you know that the person who's writing it is already successful, then if they're then writing about working class people's problems, sometimes it can come across badly. It can come across as patronising and it can come across as, oh, you know, I haven't forgotten my roots and what have you. Oh, no, I, I remember what it was like and I had to get up early and do jobs I didn't want to and so on. I don't really think, I don't get that impression with dinner ladies. I don't think it has any kind of vibe like that. To me, it's more about well, certainly the older characters, that kind of woman 
that had to do that kind of job, you know, not having a career. And I don't know how much that is about being working class as such. It's not the class thing that comes through to me. It's more about the female voices in it. Maybe that's why I liked it better, I think. It's interesting you say that about somebody who's forgotten what it's like. It struck me as consciously trying to move on so that people talked the way working people talked in the 90s. It wasn't, like I said about on the buses, that this seemed something slightly 40s, 50s, maybe even 30s sometimes about that. Dinner ladies, I don't know, did Victoria Wood do research? Did she go and work in a canteen for a bit? Did she fall off a diving board in Guernsey? The thing that always rubs me up the wrong way, and I can't think of any specific examples of it now, but I'm sure I have seen some over the years, is when you get... It doesn't have to be a sitcom. It could be you know, just like a little sketch, or it could be drama, whatever it may be. When you get somebody conveying money isn't everything, you know. You know, you, you, there there are things that are, that are more important. And, for example, the portrayal of somebody who's very wealthy and they're trying to get across to you, you know, wealthy people have got problems as well. Money doesn't buy you happiness. And whenever I see that, I think, oh, just piss off. That really rubs me up the wrong way because if you're comfortably off, then you really shouldn't be telling anybody else. You shouldn't be sort of preaching anything when it comes to the important things in life. That's what's great about Dinner Ladies, though, because at the end of the day, in the last series, money does buy them happiness, lovely family stuff. But at the end of the day, a bit of money, off you go, happiness, great. It would have been awful if she'd come into that money at the end of that last episode and then just said, do you know what? Money doesn't buy you happiness. And she just throws out the window, she just throws it away and says, (laughs) no, I don't need this. What need have we for material goods? That far more than all the trimmings, that would have (laughs) sent the audience the wrong way. Sorry, sorry. All I was going to say is that um, I can't remember the name. Dolly and Jean. You know, when I've, I've criticised, God, my mind's gone. What's his name? You know, last of summer one. What the hell's his name? Roy Clark. Criticised Roy Clark for some of the words that he puts in women's mouths. But some of the dialogue that they come up with wouldn't probably be very much different. Some of the stuff, maybe in the second series where um, Jean keeps talking about the dental hygiene that her husband's run away with. Some of those lines they come out with, I think they could have come from the pen of Roy Clark, but somehow... I think because I Victoria Woods writing it, I somehow accepted a bit more. I know you said that Roy Clark can't write for women, but I think he is at least interested in them and interested in what they have to say. Strikes me that whether he can write for them or not, he tries. Getting Sam home was the interesting one where the good time girl and the frosty wife were given little extra dimensions and were not that different. But in Dinner Ladies, I did like how Twinkle and Anita, I guess they're supposed to be roughly the same age, Twinkle's never really heard of any of the people or films they're talking about but anita has there's not this dismissive oh young people these days don't know anything but the, the guys the, the, the three characters isn't there oh there's michael as well but there's stan and the, the breadman and tiny i mean they're not very manly are they well stan's very manly but the wrong kind of manliness i was just thinking does, does victoria would write well for men actually but tony's all right isn't he he's quite admirable yeah. Stan's okay. Yeah, I was surprised re-watching it how two-dimensional Stan seemed, but then again, this is early days. By the way, everybody, Duncan Preston is from Bradford. He went to public school. There's a public school in Bradford, surprisingly enough. We must include with, by far, in my opinion, the best show of the foursome, and... If anybody disagrees with I this... I haven't then finished I about be... Dinner Ladies. I wanted to mention Sue Deverney because she was also in Spats. Which one is she? Jane, the one who wants 12 rounds of... 12 rounds of toast? Yes. 
Why do they just buy a bloody toaster? No, you can have people in offices using toasters. Because we had that in Tesco, we had a fire safety video and there was some knobhead who was making toast with a toaster whilst he was also pissing about with a fax machine. Guess what happened? Huh? You should be in the public service. We don't have cafes. We don't have canteens. We don't even have toasters, actually, because they set off the fire alarms in most places. I go to a, a room and there's plastic cutlery. That's what my life's like. So uh, <gasps> when you say I should be in the public service, do you mean because then I'd experience plastic cutlery? I don't see the appeal. You're not selling me on <laughs> this idea of... No, no, but we do have a lot of cafes, though, so I shouldn't complain. No, just the idea of a cafeteria is quite old-fashioned in itself, isn't it? Well, that is acknowledged towards the end, isn't it? Do you know what some people do in uh, cafes? Because, you know, like these days, some cafeterias they're self-service and if maybe a particular supermarket if they had like a self-service cafeteria for the staff where you could get six pieces of a english fry-up for 67 pence with your staff card right what you could do is that you could like put on like a slice of fried bread and then you could load several pieces of bacon underneath that piece of fried bread so when you then took it to the till then they still count the bits and it looks like you've got six bits on the plate but actually you know you've stuck one to the man yeah broken britain i mean that kind of thing that would just be disgusting and anybody would partake in such a activity should be castrated anyway right now the point is i didn't even say it was tesco so i didn't admit to anything there on the podcast so there i feel thoroughly ashamed now anyway I can feel you blushing. I can feel the, well, the shame wafting over. The heat's coming over the airwaves. Well, I, I was a growing lad. I wasn't. This was like four years ago. And, you know, I had, Jesus Christ. And I, I, life. I had to go up there and put all those radio times out on the shelf. You need a bit of strength in you to do that. So I had to get the goodness of the bacon when it was going cheap. It's theft, basically. But, but uh, that, that's going Don't you consider yourself to be middle class? Well,. I consider myself to be middle class, but with a working class income. He steals bacon from Tesco. I didn't steal bacon. No. I think the phrase you're looking for, I remember the phrase being used in a Zorro film, gentleman pauper. Yes, I like that. Gentleman <laughs> pauper. Oh, I'll go with that. But no, can I just c- c- correct that for the You also the need to wear a heavily embroidered charo outfit now. No, I didn't steal bacon. When you say steal bacon, that sounds like I shoved a packet of 10 unsmoked back bacon slices down my trousers and then just ran out and hoped that the alarm bells didn't go off. It wasn't anything like that. I just slipped the occasion. I mean, I mean, the person I was talking about slipped and the, ones the, the... He stuffed in his cheeks. Slipped a rasher under a slice. So that's six pieces. Yes, that's six pieces. Please do not look in my mouth. I do not have <laughs> bacon in my cheeks. <laughs> when you go to a hotel, Mooncat, yeah. and you get a continental breakfast, do you take a few rolls and put them in your bag for later? Are you that sort you of person? Bed I have never, ever had a continental breakfast a hotel. in a hotel. Oh, sorry. No, I've been to a hotel, but no, in a hotel, <laughs> you have to fry up. When, it, when that's included in the price of the room, you don't... Who the hell would have a continental breakfast? He, he takes when you the really shampoos, he takes the towels, he takes the duvet... Usually the continental and the fry-up come together, Mooncat, at least in this country. Take the heated tow rail, Corby trailer $23. $23. Carry on. Now, look, okay. Now, I think we're, we're getting away from the point here where this is this is not a, a public trial. I'm just, um, just going to bacon now. Now, okay, right. Now, early doors. I oh, say that early doors is one of the best sitcoms of the last 15 years. I think it's bloody brilliant. It's so well written. It's got so many little subtle points in it. Just 
each time you see it, if you rewatch it, you pick up on things that you didn't see before. Jesus. <laughs> rewatch it, God almighty. I've seen some of those episodes many, many <laughs> times on gold. It's just one of those things that always plays. <laughs> and they wouldn't put it on gold if it wasn't popular, so there you go. But apparently, <laughs> apparently I'm in the minority here. So, five okay. Five million viewers, I think. When Pardon? it went out, five million. I think on Wikipedia it said like five million viewers or something. Well, or? That, that's good that in right? comparison to nowadays. Nowadays, if a sitcom gets three million, they'll do, you know, Lap of Honor and you know, commission another wow. two series immediately. But, okay, so apparently Early Doors wasn't all that popular with the panel. Is that right? It was too subtle for me. <laughs> when you say too subtle, do you mean wasn't funny? Dead boring. It was, and the characters were unlikable. The only bright spark in it, quite frankly, quite frankly, was James McAvoy coming in. That was the only spark of excitement in it. And hearing him do his Scottish rather than his English accent, it was, and that was the best. It's also implied, not stated, but implied. And he's got big yep. Hung yeah, like the proverbial yep. shire horse. Yes, but oh, the guy, the, the barman, of course, had a brief. He had a, a one episode appearance in Downton Abbey. Is that Ken? Yeah, but also, did you not recognise him from the royal family? Because, of course, eventually becomes, temporarily, he becomes Anthony's father-in-law, doesn't he? I didn't recognise him for that. What did you find funny? What made you laugh? Give us a joke. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. That's... Oh, oh, no jokes in the, no jokes in the comedy programme. No, but even if there were loads of jokes in it, yeah. I'm not a comedian, so I couldn't deliver it properly, so it would get yeah. a laugh. Okay, both of you, please give early doors a proper chance just sit and concentrate on it and you will see so many little details that you wouldn't necessarily have picked up if you're if you thought it was slow or dull or whatever just let me okay just to pick one thing one thing i could random. get it for free okay one not now not now where i am now but back in the olden days in the old country i could get that for free by going and sitting in a public place and listening to the conversations of all these little people. Yeah, unpleasant little people. What's wrong with that? But no, I'll give you one example. It's patronising. No, I know. It's no, it, no, 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 I can't. I oh, can't yes, it was. No, no, come on. There was nobody admirable in that programme. You had, there were feckless, Duffy and, and so forth. There were the cheater, cheaters. There were corrupt police. No one was admirable. Is Ken, the barman, is he not supposed to be sort of our antagonist? I mean, we're not supposed He's, to be... Yeah, he he sees him. He came across probably because I've seen him <laughs> in Towns and Abbey. But he came across as uh, thinking he was better than everyone else. Actually, I don't know. I, I don't think he thinks he's better than all people. I don't think. No, I wouldn't say that. But I mean, the thing is that none of them are bad people, though. So isn't that a more? Oh, really? No, isn't, is isn't... It Duffy? Okay, he's a yeah, bad okay, person, Duffy. Isn't? Yeah, okay, he's not particularly pleasant. But the majority of people, they're not bad people, but they've got the faults. Now. That's not being patronised, and that's just being realistic. Because who on earth do any of us know who is a complete saint? Everybody's Me. got okay, but apart from yourself, then everybody's got the failings, and to acknowledge that and still have them as likable characters, good, isn't it? So it's a nice thing. It's a, it's a nice trick to be able to pull off. I just thought they were dull. You know, you can have pathos in comedy, eh? But I mean, the balance between the comedy and the the not funny, boring dialogue seemed to be wrong. There was too much of the not funny, boring dialogue. Nice to see Terry Zorgold making an appearance. Yeah, long overdue. Yeah. So okay, shall we well, look forward to what social class we're going to tackle next? Well, this is the thing, because we have a choice of viewing, don't we? Because we have the upper classes 
And you know, when I actually said that there, I just sort of nudged my glasses in such a way as if I was sort of tucking my forelock towards a member of the gentry. Also, we have what we termed the professional class, which I think is just an excuse for us to rewatch <laughs> all the episodes of Trouble in Mind for the twelfth time. I've never time. seen it. I'm, I'm oh, the, you're it. you're in for a treat. Yes. Is it as good as Early Doors? Oh, it's not that good. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. I thought that you were both going to say thank you, Mooncat, for opening your eyes to Early Doors. How come this had passed us by? I have no idea, but we're going to go out and get the DVDs immediately. That's what I was hoping you were going to say. The um, running joke in the program is about a guy who got so drunk he peed in the wardrobe. Well, it happens. Oh, man, come on. Yeah, we've all done Who it. does that? Have we? Have we all done that? Have you done that? I haven't, personally, Have you? no. 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 But, Do you know anyone who has? No, but... No. This is not quite the same thing, but I do know somebody who burst into a room once wearing only a cape, and I mean that literally, and asked someone to go out to the local greengrocers and buy five pounds worth of lemons. That is true. Is this the same person who used to hide bacon under the bread? No, let 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 let's leave him out of it because he's clearly he's he's clearly a wrong one, and we don't want him dirtying the proceedings. Yeah. Anyway, right? No, but no, actually, no, no. Just to clarify, that was not me. I was talking about there. This whole oh, business. Yeah, no, no, no. Honestly, no. That was that was a friend of mine who I will not name, yeah, yeah. but it wasn't me. Yep. Right? I don't run around wearing only a cape. That's not my style. Well, anyway. I think that it's got it's the idea that somebody would talk about lemons in Scotland. I mean. He's from a middle-class background, so they will have had fruit and Oh, it was a ragweek prank or something. Okay, it was university-related. Anyway, so next time, we're either going to be talking about the upper class, or we're going to be talking about the professional class. Because we've done all this arse about, haven't we? Because we've started with the middle class, and then we've gone to the working class. We should have done this the other way around, and then we're sort well, of Well, we started with the, the middle class because it was easiest, I think. And so we could also what talk about... What with us all class. being so damned middle-class... BMW driving, upwardly mobile professionals. Yeah. Toyota Corolla. Yes, we'll delve into the professional class next time. In the meantime, on behalf of Brody, on behalf of Ocho, this is Mooncat Co. saying thank you very much indeed for listening to the Sitcom Club. <laughs>